I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. It's become some of our, so, sort of our routine as a church, anytime we finish a book or a, a particular study, to return for a short time to the Psalms. And over the past few years, taking these short little journeys through the Psalms, we've now covered 52 of them, which means we only have how many? Like 98 left, okay? So we're making our way through. Last week, we finished our study through the Sermon on the Mount, and I hope that you did your homework. Your homework was to go home and to reread that sermon and try to put it together, now that we've taken it apart, to put it back together in your heart and your mind. Soon, we're going to start working through another book of the Bible, but for today and for the next few weeks, we're going to spend our time in the Psalms, and this morning in Psalm 135. As we come to the psalm, I want to tell you on the front end that the message of this psalm and the point of the psalm is pretty straightforward and quite simple, which means my aim for this morning is pretty straightforward and quite simple. What we see as we come to Psalm 135 is this is a call for the people of God to give praise to God. It's a call to praise. It's a call to worship. It's a call to sing. The psalmist is summoning us. He's beckoning us, even commanding us to praise God. And that is the big idea of Psalm 135. And if you've come in today, and this is a good day for you, and you've had a, a good week, and you're looking forward to the week to come, then the call of this psalm may seem natural and appropriate and good. Now let's face reality. Not all of you have had a good week. Not all of you are looking forward to the week to come. Some of you truly and honestly are dealing with hard things. And isn't this the reality for, for all of us that for many of us, on many days, our natural disposition, our default frame of mind may not be to go through the day thinking about how worthy God is to be praised. Often we just see the things right in front of us. But with that said, Psalm 135 is not only a call for those who are having good days and good weeks and good seasons to give praise to God. It's a call for all of us on all days and in all seasons to be people who give praise to God. What we have here is a, a list of reasons why God deserves our praise on every day and in every season. It's one of those parts of the scripture that, that should refocus our attention. Sometimes we need to be refocused, don't we? The psalm points us to God. It tells us true things about him. It serves to remind us that no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter how frustrated we are with the past, 
no matter how uncertain we are of the future, hear this, we have a God who is good and desires good for his people. He is sovereign, he is powerful, and he cares for you. He has been faithful in the past, and he will be faithful in the future. Man, we're easily distracted, aren't we? Sometimes it's good things that distract us from the praise of God. And sometimes it's hard things that cloud our view and make it difficult for us to see a God who is to be praised. So this morning is our chance to turn our attention to God, to be reminded of how worthy he is. And my hope is that you would leave this morning more convinced of his goodness, more convinced of his care for you, and more confident that he can be trusted with whatever this week brings or whatever last week held. So, Psalm 135, we're going to read it. So I hope you have your Bible and you'll follow along. Hear the word of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the sea and in all the deeps. He it is who makes clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and of beast. Who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants who struck down many nations and killed many mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites. Og, king of Basham. And all the kingdoms of Canaan. He gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to his people. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Now, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. House of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So on Friday, I was with Stephen. He asked me what 
passage we would be in this morning. I told him I was preparing Psalm 135, so Stephen pulled up his phone, skimmed through the text, and I'm probably going to misquote you, but Stephen said something like this. Pretty standard psalm stuff. And he wasn't being dismissive, and he wasn't being disrespectful of the text. He was recognizing and acknowledging something that's true, that this psalm says a lot of things about God that we hear in lots of other psalms. It's pretty standard psalms stuff. And yet, I don't know if Stephen actually knew how accurate he was, technically, because almost every part of this psalm has been taken from other psalms and compiled here. We don't know who wrote this psalm, or we don't actually know how it was composed. But what it seems like is that it's a compilation of various descriptions of God that had been written or that were part of the oral tradition of that day. And so we find many of these verses or paragraphs in other places, but this psalmist took them together and organized them to this end, that the people of God would be moved to the praise of God. And we can be sure that this is the purpose because of how it starts. Do you notice the repetition at the beginning? Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'm just reading the verses again, okay? That's what it says. And I told you at the start that the point of the psalm is pretty straightforward. And it ends the same way it begins. It ends with another repeated set of calls to bless or praise the Lord. It's very repetitive, but it's also very specific. It's both specific in who is to be praised and who is to be doing the praising. Who's to be praised? He says, the Lord. And I'll encourage you to look back at your text. And for some of you, this is just natural. You've seen this a lot But if you look at your Bible, you'll notice that that word Lord in those first few verses looks different than the others because it's in all caps or small caps. And that's the, those who compiled our English Bible, those who translated it and published it for us, they did that as a way of telling us that this this word Lord represents the, the personal proper name of God. See, God in the Old Testament identified his, his name. His name, best we know to pronounce it based on what we have, would be Yahweh. But those in the Old Testament believed that that was a name too holy to be spoken. So when they wanted to say the proper name of God, they said, Lord, Adonai. And, and so anytime the translators are translating the scriptures and they come to Yahweh, they keep this tradition of not saying it, but giving us this title, Lord. And so if you look in those first few verses, you see L-O-R-D in all caps quite a few times. The proper name of God. And here's the reason I want to point that out this morning. It's important to recognize 
that God is not simply an ambiguous higher power. He's a God who's identifiable and personal. A God who can be known. All that to say is this is a call to praise, not a general vague concept of God, but the one true God, the creator God, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of Moses and of David, the God of Israel, the God who has made and kept promises, the God who sent his son to be the savior of the world. It's an important distinction. We don't worship a vague or unknowable higher power. We worship a God who has revealed himself, who is involved in history, a God who can be and wants to be known. While he's the creator of all the world, what we see and recognize in this text is that he has called a specific people to himself. He's rescued and redeemed a people. And this psalm is different from other psalms in that there are some psalms that call all people and all creation to praise God. This psalm isn't a general call for all people and all creation. It's a call for the people of God to praise God. We see that in the first couple of verses. Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, give praise, O servants of the Lord. And then he gets more specific. He says, those who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. What's going on here, he's probably speaking of the Levites and the priests and those who conducted worship in the temple. He's calling those who are the people of God to praise. And then he expands it at the end when he says, all Israel. All who fear the Lord, bless the Lord or praise the Lord. And I'm spending time here on something that's probably obvious to you to, to just make this connection. This is a specific call of worship for us as his people who know him and are growing into him to praise him, the one true and noble God. If you're in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and trusted Christ for salvation, you are counted among the people of God. Think about that for a moment. A child of God. Son, daughter of the Father. Jesus told us to pray, Our Father in heaven. The God of all things. So who is he and what is he like? And that's what the psalm unpacks for us. We're just going to walk through some things that the psalmist tells us about God and why he's deserving and worthy of our praise. And we see the first one there in verse 3. He says, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. He's good. And that word good comes from a Hebrew word that's best understood as meaning good. All right. To flush that out a little bit, he's good in every way. Everything he does is good. He's the means and the source, or the source and the means. I'm not sure which way that goes. Everything good comes from him. 
This is what James tells us in the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God is good, and everything that comes from him is good, even, friend, the difficulties of life that come from him are sent by a good God for good purposes in your life. Praise the Lord. He's good. And we could spend the rest of our morning listing all the ways he's good. The psalmist gives us two specific ways. I think these are connected back to why God or how God is good. First, the Lord's goodness is shown in who he is. Look at verse 3 again. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. Now, when you're reading the scriptures, and it refers to the name of God, um, worship the name of God, sing to the name of God. That was probably my son. The name of God is representative of who he is. Just like your name is representative of who you are. So when we're thinking about the name of God, we're thinking about who God is in totality, his, his being. So when we sing to the name of the Lord, we're singing and thinking about the character of God, the, the whole of God. And he says this about the name of God, the being of God of God, the whole person of God, he says, it's pleasant, which is a synonym of good. Sing to him. He's good. His name is pleasant. His core identity is good. And then we get another reason for recognizing the goodness of God. The Lord's goodness is shown in his sovereign election. Look at verse 4. The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. The goodness of God is shown in this, that God has chosen and saved a people for himself. Now, we usually get this backwards. This is a common misunderstanding. So follow this. Our tendency is to say that all people are inherently good and deserve to be saved by God. All people are inherently good and all people deserve to be saved by God. That's a general way of thinking. But it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says only God is good and every person is born hostile towards him at enmity with him, and yet that good God whom we have hated has chosen to take some of those haters and enemies and make them his treasured possession. That is the goodness of God, that you deserving the wrath of God has rescued you and saved you and called you his own child. Praise the Lord, he is good. 
right? But why? Why did he choose Israel? We'll put it in that context first. Why did he choose them? Here's what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Consider this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And just sit with that for a second, church. Because it's true of you if you're in Christ. He has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. Why did he choose Israel? It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why did God choose Israel? Not because of anything that they had done, but because of his love and his faithfulness to his promises. In love, he has chosen a people for his own possession. If we fast forward to where we are today, we know that all who come to him in repentance and faith, believing in the work of Christ, his death and resurrection, are counted among those who are his people, once deserving of wrath, but now recipients of mercy. And we can go to the New Testament and think about how similar this sounds to what we read in Deuteronomy. Peter, one of the disciples of Christ, wrote a small letter, and he said this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise the Lord, for he is good. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. We've all come in different ways today. Some of you came in with burdens that are huge. Some with worries, fears, anxieties. And it can be easy to come in on a Sunday morning not really feeling it. You know what I mean? But this is our hope. That even if we lose everything, we are his. He is good. Not only is he good, the psalmist goes on in verse 5. He says this, I know, for I, I know that the Lord is great. And that our Lord is above all gods. So not only is he good... He's great, and his greatness is shown in his authority and in his sovereignty. And so just follow where we've been, put these pieces together. He's good, we are his, and now we get to see more fully the nature of the one to whom we belong. 
Look at verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, he it is who makes clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. So not only is he the creator, but he is still today sovereign over every part of his creation. I'm using this word sovereignty. What does that mean? It means complete rule over. Here's a definition of sovereignty in the case of God. Verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. As I thought about this, I I was thinking, we read on Wednesday, a couple weeks ago, we were in Daniel. The story of King Nebuchadnezzar, okay? King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, not a follower of God, uh, a a king of a, a foreign nation, and yet was having interactions with the people of God. And he was proud. And God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through a dream that Daniel, a follower of God, interprets. And the dream calls Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself before God. I'm compressing the story. He does not humble himself. He continues to grow in pride and say things like, look at what I have done. Look at the nation that I have built. And so God, keeping his promise that he gave through this dream, humbles this king. And not just like makes him feel bad about himself, turns him into an animal that grazes and eats grass. That's extreme, right? Kind of wild. A once great king out of his mind, crawling on the ground, eating the grass. But then we're told that God restores his senses. And now I want you to hear what this king, who became a grass eater, said. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, he says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, after that whole deal, (laughs) I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He says this, And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What has he done? That's sovereignty. And Nebuchadnezzar, a great king, got it. He is God. He does what he pleases. Our our passage puts it in terms of creation. He makes the clouds. He brings the lightning. He sends the wind. It reminds me, did you think of this? It reminds me of the conversation that God has with Job in those last few chapters of the book of Job. Remember, Job has been questioning some of the things that God has done. And God shows up and says things like this. You have questions? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I shut the door on the seas and set their limits? Have you, Job, ever seen the storehouses of snow and of hail? 
don't you know that the rain has a father? Job, can you make lightning strike? Do you exercise knowledge and wisdom over the animals of the earth, providing for them and sustaining them? Three chapters of this, okay? This is the sovereign God. I told you that you could find this. And here's your homework. I forgot to give it to you earlier. Your homework is to, to, to follow the cross-references. If you have a Bible that has cross-references, follow those and see how this psalm is actually a compilation of lots of other passages of Scripture. Psalm 115, chapter, or verse 2, says, Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So we saw in our passage. Let me give you one more example. I want you to see if this is a common theme throughout the scriptures, the idea that God is sovereign, he is over all, and nothing can thwart his plan. Isaiah says this. This is him speaking the words of God. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purposes. So how do we put this together with where we just were? Friends, he's good. He's sovereign, he's almighty, he's good, and if you come to him in faith, you are his. What kind of gift is that? To be called the child of the most high, the one who is God and does whatever he pleases, and then to say, he's good and I'm his. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O servants of the Lord. So we've seen his greatness and his sovereignty over creation. And then the psalmist continues to talk about the greatness of God, but he gives us another kind of example. He's sovereign and he's great over all creation, and he's sovereign and great in the way that he cares for his people. Look at verse number eight. little history lesson. He it was, God, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed many mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Basham, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. Now, that's a lot, that's like years and years and years of history summarized in five verses. It points us back to when the people of God were slaves in Egypt, and they never could have freed themselves. But God uses signs and wonders to bring his people out of Israel. The final act being this, that, that God said, so that Egypt will release my people and he warned them, I'm going to send a, an angel who will pass over 
and the firstborn of every family and of every animal will be killed, except for those, and there's a whole series of things they were supposed to do, the final of which is where they were to put the blood of a pure lamb over the door of their home, so that when this angel passed over, the firstborn of every home and animal would die, except those who were covered by the blood. And this is a story that's retold over and over throughout the Old Testament. This picture of God delivering his people from slavery. And it's a story that's repeated in us. Those who have been rescued from the slavery of sin by the blood of the Lamb. The psalmist points us back to that story of rescue and deliverance. It says, this is God who does whatever he pleases, who chooses a people for himself and delivers them. And not only did he take them out of slavery, but he had promised, this is all a promise that goes back to Genesis 12. He was keeping a promise made to Abraham that he would make this people and that he would give them a land. And we see that he does that. But the land that he gave them was not a land that was just open for the taking. It was a land that was occupied. And as we read through the story of the people of Israel, what we see is that one by one, nation by nation, king by king, God defeated them all. It's very clear the people of Israel did not defeat their enemies. God defeated their enemies. And there were lots of battles. It's interesting. He mentions two in particular. Sion, king of the Amorites, was defeated, and Og, king of Basham. Give me a second just to remember who those guys are. Probably don't, okay? But you could read about them in Numbers chapter 21, in Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3, and probably the reason they're mentioned here, these were the first kings and lands that were defeated whose land was actually part of the promised land. So this is the point at which it became very clear God is going to do what he said he was going to do. He's going to give us what he has promised. That's what we see in verse 12. He gave their land as a heritage. Whose land? The land of King Og and the land of King Sion. He gave their land as a heritage to his people. Because God keeps his promises. We see his greatness and how he sovereignly does all that he says that he will do. This is our hope, too, that we have been rescued from slavery and we have been promised an inheritance. And we can trust, you can trust, friends, he will keep his promise. What he's done in the past is an assurance of what he will do in the future. And it seems like that's what's happening here in verse 13. Up to this point, what's he been doing? Calling us to praise. You praise God. And then as he recounts the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God, the, the greatness of God, it's like he gets to a point where he doesn't only want to call us, but he's ready to praise himself. Did you notice the change of voice there in verse 13? Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. 
After reminding us of his goodness and greatness, the psalmist himself begins to praise, and he points us forward. God's name and his character that has been there and visible in the past, he says, endures forever. It's for all ages. This good, great, sovereign God, that doesn't end. It it keeps going. It reminds me of of Hebrews chapter 1. You, O Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, and like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. He's eternal. He's the same. We read later in Hebrews. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. As he was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. We should praise God knowing that he has made promises. He will keep his promises because he never changes. Which is why the psalmist says in verse 14, the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Just as he saved his people in the past, he will keep his promises to us. Like we read in Lamentations chapter 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That sounds great. But let me tell you about my week. Right? You been there? That's great, but I have to go to work tomorrow. We all have days when it's hard to see beyond what's right in front of us. But I hope that as you walk into this week, you walk in with this reminder that God is good. And he is overall. And I am his. And he can do whatever he pleases. And I can trust him. Just as he has been faithful in the past, he will be faithful in the future. We can be sure because his word is sure. Friend, whatever your week was like or will be like, we have a reason to praise. The temptation can be to feel like God is distant or uncaring or unable to help. That's why I like this next part of the psalm. Look at verse 15. He begins to compare, or rather contrast, the God he's been describing with the false gods of the people in these foreign lands. He says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. It's a contrast between the God of heaven who does whatever he pleases and gods who are man-made, made out of things that God created by people who God created. He wants us to see their inability. They have no power. They can't do anything. 
They have mouths and eyes and ears, but they can't speak or see or hear. They're lifeless, and yet they're worshipped. This is something that gets a lot of attention throughout the, the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. My favorite is in Isaiah chapter 44. It's what I like to call sanctified mockery. Okay? As God describes the foolishness of worshiping anything apart from him. He uses the example of man-made idols. This is what he says. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. You following it? Man plants a tree. It grows up. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of that tree and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it and falls down before it. Sanctified mockery. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it and prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. If you think the Bible is stale or boring, you're not paying attention. Here we have God absolutely destroying the idea of building and worshiping idols. Pointing out the absurdity. How could you worship something made of wood? You cook over it. You build a fire for warmth and then you build something to worship. It's illogical. It's absurd. And yet we are all guilty of it. We find created things and give them our devotion. How much time have you spent fantasizing or pursuing that ideal home or car? Perfect yard or wardrobe? We take created things, temporary lifeless, and we make them ultimate objects of worship. And we put our hope in them. So if we get them, we have joy. And if we don't, there's fallout. And some of you physical things don't appeal to you, but, but your thing that you have made and that you worship is your career or your education or a relationship. Don't miss the point. We have all fallen and worshiped things that aren't God. Did you see what verse 18 says? Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. He's saying the idols are impotent and dead, and so will be those who worship them. Those who trust in them can expect that they too will be void and empty. Worshiping anything other than the true God will never bring ultimate joy or satisfaction. Okay, so how does that fit with the rest of the psalm? Is this just standard psalm stuff? There's a flow of thought here. 
We have a God who is good and great and sovereign. And yet, friends, so often we give our worship to things that were never meant to be worshiped. But here's the hope. We don't have to worship those things. We can worship the one true God, so praise him. It's a call to take our eyes off ourselves, off of our idols, and to turn our eyes and our praise to God. He concludes with the reminder of the reason for the psalm. Verse 19. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. House of Aaron, bless the Lord. House of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. You can do it for homework and, and recognize the difference between the house of Aaron and Levi. What those are significant. But what we see is he's calling all the people of God to praise God. He says six times, praise him. And friends, as those who live on this side of the cross, even more reason to praise him. We recognize that the God that's written about in Psalm 135, who that psalmist said would vindicate his people, you know what that God did? He sent his son, fully God, to take on flesh and to live among us. And he did for 30 years. God lived on earth. And do you know how he was received ultimately? He was hated and he was killed. According to the will of God. Why? Because God had promised to vindicate his people. God had promised to deliver his people, not only from Egypt, but from sin and death. So Jesus came and he died a sacrificial death, meaning this, that he didn't die for his own sins. He died for the sins of all who would believe. And so now this has been extended to us. That if we repent of our sins and confess, I have trusted in things beside you. I have sinned against the holy God. And yet I recognize that Jesus came and died and that through trusting in his sacrifice, I can be spared from wrath, granted forgiveness and eternal life. He is good. And he can do whatever he pleases. And yet, he has chosen to save sinners like us. Praise the Lord. And now it's appropriate that we would come to a table and partake in the meal that God has ordained for us, where we would eat bread and remember his flesh and drink from a cup to remember his blood and as the people of God to praise him for the work that he has done on our behalf. Praise the Lord. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to share of the table. Let's pray.